Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hello, everyone. This is the Sci-Fi Feminist, and a warm welcome back to the podcast. I hope that you had a good week that passed and that you are safe and healthy. I also hope that you enjoyed last week's episode, which was kind of a recap on one of my favorite Star Trek uh, characters, which is Emperor Giorgio from Star Trek Discovery. Today I will be looking at something a little bit different. I'm going to look at witches and non-biological motherhood in fantasy film. And I think today, let me focus on Maleficent. And I'll do this in a series of three episodes. Uh, Maleficent, next week, let me do Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. And the week after that, how about the house with the clock in its walls? So if you're a fantasy fan, <laughs> I'm taking a break from sci-fi. And uh, today, gonna look at some fantasy film. Now, this is the new segment that I introduced, movie recommendation segment. Uh, this week, since we are talking about fantasy, let me recommend a fantasy film. Uh, my fantasy film recommendation is Pan's Labyrinth. If you haven't watched it already, it's an old film, but very interesting Visually quite stunning in some places. It's kind of freaky and weird, but it's an awesome movie and definitely one of my old, all time fantasy favorites. So yes, watch Pan's Labyrinth then <laughs> this week if you want to, if you're looking for a movie to watch. All right. So without further ado, as usual, let me get into today's episode on Maleficent, motherhood, non-biological motherhood and witches in fantasy film. Let's get into the episode. Right, so first things first, let's look at motherhood and how feminists have grappled with the idea of motherhood in feminism. As you uh, might have noticed from previous episodes, motherhood and feminism is a pretty complicated subject because some people question the notion that motherhood and feminism are compatible. Um, it seems that motherhood and feminism seem to be on two opposite ends of the spectrum because how can you be an empowered woman if you are a mother? Okay, so I really don't agree with that uh, argument. <laughs> of course, you can be a feminist and a mother. And that is the argument that I will make today, uh, especially regarding non-biological motherhood. So if we just look back a little bit at uh, feminism and motherhood, as you know, the first wave of feminism, the suffragettes, uh, if you want to watch a movie on first wave feminism, you can watch Suffragette. It stars some very good actresses, including Meryl Streep. Um, the suffragettes in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they demanded that the private and domestic skills of women as mothers should be recognized and given importance in the public sphere. And then, of course, liberal and radical feminism from the second wave also more and more viewed motherhood as one of patriarchy's main, ma patriarchy's main institutions that suppresses women. So if you're aware uh, of the text by Betty Friedan, it's called The Feminine Mystique. In her text written in about the 1960s, um, she identifies, I quote, the problem that has no name, 
that most middle-class American women who were confined to the home and raising children experienced towards the end of the 1950s. Now, Friedan said that the epitome of feminine fulfillment after World War II was the highly problematic feminine mystique, which was basically the suburban housewife who was, and I quote from her, concerned only about her husband, her children, her home. And then radical feminists such as Shulamith Firestone, she envisions a feminist utopia, I quote, where women are freed from their historically determined biological function of bearing children that has oppressed them for centuries. She says that the social and cultural structures such as the biological nuclear family and motherhood that have created division between the sexes need to be abolished. <laughs> so these were some of the arguments made by early feminists. So this, the first waivers and the second waivers. And um, this is obviously, you know, you can see how motherhood became an issue, I think, especially during that time, 1900s, because, you know, there were many housewives after the war and they were having a hard time, like Friedan says. So for many liberal feminists, many second wave feminists, um, you know, it's better for women not to be a mother <laughs> because that is the thing that apparently oppresses them. Um so, you know, it's a, it's a complicated situation. Um, then the cultural feminists came along here towards the 1980s. And they say that actually motherhood should be considered one of the main things that empower women. So they say that motherhood has been devalued by men and therefore it's feminism's task to reclaim and celebrate it instead of condemning it. So Adrian Rich, she wrote one of the seminal texts for cultural feminism. She said that, yes, it's true that 20th century motherhood has become nothing less than, and I quote, penal servitude, but it need not be this way. She then distinguishes between two meanings of motherhood which are the potential relationship, this is a quote, <laughs> the potential relationship of any woman to her powers of reproduction and to children and the institution which aims at ensuring that that potential and all women shall remain under male control. So she then says that it's this institution of motherhood rather than motherhood itself that has, and I quote, ghettoized and degraded female potentialities. So the conclusion of her arguments is actually that, in fact, motherhood gives a woman power. This is what Adrian Rich argues at the end of the day. And then in addition to this, um, there's also the issue of biological motherhood and adoptive motherhood. So biological motherhood has been and still is mythically considered superior to non-biological motherhood. So these two theorists, their name are, names are Sanner and Coleman, they give these reasons why biological motherhood is favored over non-biological motherhood. They say that firstly, biological motherhood is seen as an important rite of passage to womanhood. 
Secondly, I quote, ideologies of perfection characterized by involved intensive mothering combined with unconditional love, patience and support are associated only with biological motherhood and not non-biological motherhood. And finally, I quote, normative motherhood is marked by the biological process of pregnancy and thus biological maternity becomes, I quote, the ultimate symbol of not only motherhood, but also womanhood. So this is, of course, not true at all. <laughs> uh, I am a someone that has, uh, uh, I am not adopted, but I have, there are many women in my life that play the role of an adoptive mother to me. So I'm really, I, I it's really unfortunate that all of these good qualities are associated only with biological motherhood. But what I'm going to show you now for the rest of this episode, that actually in representations of witches, so I'm going to look specifically at Mary Poppins uh, as a foundation at, for today, and then as at Maleficent, um, these non-biological witches that are mothers, you know, quotation marks, mothers to the children in the films actually provide a very empowering version of womanhood and femininity. So the idea that non-biological mothers are evil are definitely manifested in popular culture in representations of countless evil stepmothers or godmothers that are not associated with biological motherhood and who are often represented as wicked witches, such as the evil queen in Snow White, the depictions of Maleficent in the original Sleeping Beauty, um, now I can't think of any others. <laughs> evil stepmoms. Uh, in Disney especially, um, evil stepmothers are, are all over the place. So often in children's stories, and especially in these early Disney films, the good human and biological mother of the protagonist, who is, and I quote, loving, nurturing, attentive, and often self-sacrificing, is often supplanted by the binary opposite of that, which is the evil adopted mother or stepmother, who happens to be a witch in many cases. Um, yeah, so I, I always find it quite funny that as soon, um, yeah, as it's a, an adoptive mother, she just has some magical powers. Um, I watched a very interesting movie. Uh, it's called Snow White, Snow White, A Tale of Terror. Now, I only watched that because I'm a very big Sigourney Weaver fan. So I, I watched it for the sake of, you know, watching Sigourney Weaver. But in that movie, it presents quite an interesting take on, uh, on this non-biological motherhood and witches. So in this movie, Lady Claudia Hoffman, who is played by Sigourney Weaver, she only becomes the evil stepmother and gains her magical powers after having a miscarriage. So before that, she's not actually evil. She's just uh, just a stepmom. But as soon as she has a miscarriage, then she turns evil and then she somehow gains magical powers too. <laughs> So she is then, after her miscarriage, forced to adopt the princess as her own daughter, which explicitly links biological motherhood with goodness and non-biological motherhood with evil. This is also very interesting, of course, because Sigourney Weaver played Ellen Ripley in Alien and Aliens and all the Alien movies. 
And this is a very stark contrast to the representation of her in Aliens, because in Aliens, we actually see a more positive representation of adoptive motherhood when we look at Ripley's uh, relationship with Newt, the little girl. So that is that is kind of the history and that is kind of the situation that we are in concerning um, motherhood. Now let's look at witches. Witches, the history of witches can be traced back to well, as early as the 1930s, in film at least, uh, definitely witches trace back way before that in other forms of literature. But in film, we saw the Wicked Witch of the West, who appeared in The Wizard of Oz in 1939. She was arguably the first real witch on film. And then since then, we had many other witches. There was the Witches of Eastwick. Um, Cher is in that movie. I'm a huge Cher fan. It's quite a weird movie. Actually, it was not, yeah, it was too much for me. It's got a really great cast. Actually, I think, uh, what's her name? Uh, what's her name? That blonde woman. Oh, now I forgot her name. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, is it? I'm not sure. <laughs> now I forgot. Um, and Cher, and there's someone else. They're all like quite famous people in that movie, but that was a, a, a strange movie for me. But I watched it because I like Cher. Um, yeah, so sorry I'm going off on a ta tangent. Um, other witches include the sisters from Practical Magic, Morgana from Camelot, Ridley from Beautiful Creatures, Melisander from Game of Thrones, and then a few evil witches in the early Disney animations and films. So all of these witches are generally considered to be wicked and evil. And very interestingly, many of them are defined by their sexual prowess and their seductive powers rather than motherhood. So many of these witches are quite sexy and they often use their sexuality to get what they want. So... You know, as you can imagine, evil witches have been read as feminist characters in many instances because they embody powerful femininity free from male influence or ownership. They are self-defined rather than being defined in relation to others. And they also, you know, get whatever they want. And um, interestingly, they use their sexuality to, to do that and their magic. Then um, if we look at some... Good witches, we see that um, many of many times the good witches are younger than the evil ones. The evil witches in pop culture they usually shown like in their forties or so, like you know, evil woman in her forties. Where good witches we saw Hermione, of course, from Harry Potter. She's uh, younger. Sabrina from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Willow Rosenberg from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, etc., etc. Um, I'm not going to go into these teenage witches and what makes them empowering or not. Um, but this is kind of the situation we are in <laughs> regarding witches. Now, I'm going to look a little bit at Mary Poppins because she was one of the first witches that are good, that is a potentially feminist character. And that also has associations with motherhood. Now, of course, you know, the first Mary Poppins movie was released 1964 with Julie Andrews. I love Julie Andrews and I listened to that Mary Poppins soundtrack. 
I, at least <laughs> once a week. I, I love Mary Poppins, especially the way Julie Andrews portrayed her. And then there was Mary Poppins Returns in 2018, which was played by Emily Blunt. So there's also Nanny McPhee. I didn't watch Nanny McPhee. <laughs> um yeah i guess i preferred mary poppins so yeah let me talk about mary poppins instead of nanny mcphee so if we look at mary poppins first of all she's not defined by her sexuality and actually her appearance is more conservative like that of the good biological mothers of protagonists in children's literature so what mary poppins does as you know she's a magical nanny who waits for families that require her particular magical set of skills to call upon her to be their nanny. And then in the film, Mary Poppins swoops down with her talking umbrella. I love that scene. In The Simpsons, they made a joke where she has like, she's flying with the umbrella and she goes into the power cord. Uh, I thought that was quite funny, but yeah, she has this talking umbrella with which she flies. So she swoops, swoops down. She, um, solves the problems, family problems for the bank's children. And then she flies back off again. So what she does, she intervenes and resolves the children's relationship with their father and especially his attitude towards his family. So in the film, we see this um, very stereotypically uninvolved breadwinner father and then after Mary Poppins's intervention, he becomes a family man. He no longer cares for his business and all the problems are resolves, resolved. And then when she succeeds, she disappears with the wind until the next family needs her. Apparently in 2018, <laughs> when uh, Emily Blunt plays Mary Poppins. So interestingly, I quote from another theorist, Mary Poppins operates on the margins of traditional family values by taking on a parental role, which subversively dismantles the structure of the nuclear family. Mary Poppins also belongs to the tradition of the empowered spinster in children's fiction, and this fits the Jungian great mother archetype. So this archetype is uh, the great mother archetype. She's both creative and destructive, possessing a nourishing as well as a devouring side. Um, in in Adrian Rich's uh, text on cultural feminism and motherhood, she actually traces the history of female goddess worship to the great mother archetype who existed in gynocentric societies millennia ago that have women-centered social organizations. Now, for Rich, Adrian Rich, I mean, this, uh, these, uh, the the great mother. This is an alternative to the problematic institution of motherhood that subjugates women and it can be found in an ancient pre-patriarchal society in which this institution did not exist at all. So Rich gives a few examples of images of the Great Mother and she says that the Great Mother, even while suckling an infant, she is for herself. She also says that images of the pre-patriarchal goddess cults did one thing. They told women that power, awesomeness, and centrality were theirs by nature, not by privilege or miracle. The female was primary. Now, that was quoted from her text. In this uh, pre-patriarchal society, all the current taboos associated with motherhood and menstruation before 
motherhood became institutionalized, these things were celebrated for their transformative powers as well. So in this way, Adrian Rich highlights motherhood's empowering potential as it existed in ancient societies and particularly in the great mother archetype. So in embodying, in embodying this great mother archetype, Mary Poppins therefore also subverts the problematic notion of institutionalized motherhood. And then also importantly, Mary Poppins is both a good witch and a good non-biological mother, which then assumes, uh, challenges the assumed binary that, um, you know, only bad witches can be feminists and that bad witches are usually non-biological mothers. So in this way, Mary Poppins is quite transgressive. Of course, um, not everyone thinks that Mary Poppins is such a great feminist character. Some people say that she actually reinforces the patriarchal order. So for a theorist uh, named Cuomo, Mary Poppins fails to subvert the established social system. As the father of the children in her care, Mr. Banks realizes the importance of attending to his family due to Mary Poppins' endeavors. And therefore, this once again legitimizes patriarchy and once again reinforces traditional family values. Also, rather than permanently altering the state of affairs, Mary Poppins only provides a temporary alternative to patriarchy, as Mary Poppins ultimately leaves the children once her work is done, essentially remaining an outsider. All right, so I gave this background on Mary Poppins so that we have a better framework for understanding Maleficent. Now, actually, this great mother archetype it is actually, um, how can I say, reincarnated in the figure of Maleficent too. And I would also argue that Maleficent, um, like Mary Poppins, presents an empowered version of the non-biological or the maternal good witch. So I will show how Maleficent is simultaneously a good mother and also a feminist witch, <laughs> which challenges that um, that assumed binary that, you know, if you're a witch, you have to be bad and you have to be a bad mother. Okay, so if we look at Maleficent, she first appeared in 1959 in the Disney animation of Sleeping Beauty, and she's portrayed as the villain of the the cartoon because she shows up to Princess Aurora's christening uninvited and she curses her for no legitimate reason to die on her 16th birthday after being pricked by a needle. So then, of course, uh, as is the established Disney trope, only true love's first kiss by a prince can break the spell. In the 1959 version, Maleficent also turns into a dragon if she wishes. So it's kind of... Uh, cool and freaky. <laughs> so according to another theorist named Zaranz, the original portrayal of Maleficent reflects Disney's tendency to present older women as villains, where youth, as embodied by Aurora, the princess, equates goodness, while age, which is embodied, embodied by Maleficent, equates evil. In the original film, then Maleficent presents the epitome of, and I quote, middle-aged beauty at its peak of sexuality and authority. 
and therefore also presents the binary opposite of Aurora's good biological mother, the queen, who is portrayed as ageless and innocent. So once again, we see that very classic age-old binary. Now, in the reboot story of Maleficent, of course, we see a more sympathetic view of the character by the director of the film. So as you know, if you've seen the movie, um, my brief take on the movie, I really liked the first Maleficent. The second one wasn't that good. I think it was totally mistitled. <laughs> um, but I, I really liked the first one. I love Angelina Jolie too, of course. Um, but one of the first and the most important change is in the film, in the reboot, is that instead of trying to kill Princess Aurora, Maleficent rather keeps a watchful and protective, even maternal eye on the princess and even regrets initially cursing her. Also, and I really loved this twist, it's Maleficent's maternal kiss of love, maternal kiss, kiss of maternal love that saves Aurora rather than Prince Philip's kiss. Um, and we see this subverted in many of the more recent Disney films, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, if we look at Moana, uh, Frozen, Wreck-It Ralph, um, the, the whole prince thing has been done away with quite a bit. And um, yeah, in Maleficent, we see this too. And then also it is women acting in solidarity and love that ultimately solves the problems caused by the patriarchal realm of man. And then, uh, like I mentioned, the, the 2014 se the sequel of the film in 2019 also further explores the maternal relationship between Maleficent and Aurora. Even though Prince Philip features in the sequel, the focus still remains on the struggles between Maleficent and Aurora and everything they overcome as mother and daughter. And then also we see, of course, Maleficent even acknowledges Aurora as her very own daughter and Aurora acknowledges Maleficent not as her adoptive mother, but as her mother. <laughs> and... Um, Aurora doesn't uh, refer to her biological mother as her mother, but she refers to Maleficent as her mother. And of course, interestingly, Maleficent also displays all the characteristics of the good biological mother towards Princess Aurora, which are loving, nurturing, attentive, and also often self-sacrificing. So, for example, we see that Maleficent follows Aurora in the shadows from birth. <laughs> she nurtures and feeds her when the three uh, stupid fairies that are in charge of Aurora fail to do so. And Maleficent is also attentive to Aurora. She saves her from tumbling off a cliff as a toddler. And in an act of self-sacrifice, Maleficent is almost captured and killed after trying to get Prince Philip to Aurora, who she believes may break the curse she put on Aurora as a baby. And then I thought this was very significant. Maleficent ultimately tries to revoke the curse that she put on Aurora, which reveals that she has developed maternal feelings towards the princess. And she also even gives her a nickname, which is Beastie. <laughs> I thought that was quite cute. All right, so we see how Maleficent has changed and we also see how she is now more equated, uh, even though she's an adoptive mother, to all the characteristics of biological mothers. Okay, 
Another important aspect of the 2014 Maleficent reboot is that she puts the curse on Princess Aurora because of the injustice she suffered at the hands of patriarchy, or man, which is represented by King Stefan. King Stefan's betrayal of Maleficent, and uh, this is what another theorist has said, and I agree with this, it can also be read as rape, <laughs> because he takes advantage of her trust in him in order to remove her, win her wings violently after drugging her with a sleeping potion so that he may prove his worth as successor to the throne. Um, this approach to the villainess's motivations is then, of course, also very different from the original version. In the original version, Maleficent simply curses Aurora because she can, or because she wasn't invited to the christening. And we can also maybe say that because she was perhaps jealous of um, Aurora and her beauty and her youth. Like many other evil witches, like Lady, Lady Clodagh Hoffman in Snow White, A Tale of Terror also uh, is. So now Maleficent's motivation for acting evil is not due to jealousy towards the young and the ageless and beautiful princess, but rather because of the injustices she suffered at the hands of the patriarchal feudal system that rules the realms of the humans. Also, we see that Maleficent is not portrayed in terms of her sexuality, but rather in terms of her maternity, like Aurora's mother in the original animated film. And then, uh, finally, while many dichotomies, you know, still continue to exist in the film, you know, the, the film isn't perfect, of course, um, Definitely the revised version of Maleficent presents a more nuanced idea of age, femininity, and motherhood, because she cannot be simplistically categorized into either a hero or a villain. I think it's her speech right at the end where she says something like, or is it at the beginning? I don't know. I haven't watched the movie in a while. Where she says, um, you know, it's not a, a hero or a villain that saved the day or, you know, it's kind of a bit of both. I think it was something like that. Yeah, don't quote me on that. But she actually, oh, it's what Princess Aurora says. She says that actually Maleficent is both a hero and a villain. And she's also a witch, which is a feminist and also a good mother, like Mary Poppins. And I would argue that even more than what Mary Poppins achieves, owing to Maleficent's adoptive maternal relationship with Aurora, the worlds of humans and magical creatures unite, and then the state of affairs is altered permanently, instead of just temporarily, like it is the case with Mary Poppins. So at the end of the day, it's maternity rather than the heterosexual love between Maleficent and King Stefan, or um, the love between Aurora and the prince that could have united the two, two worlds, which proves to be the answer to the war between the two realms. So it's, it's motherhood and not love, <laughs> or motherly love and not um, other love, <laughs> uh, romantic love. And, you know, this is the quality that ultimately redeems Maleficent, who has been villainized for decades. You know, she was always the bad guy. And now she's redeemed as a hero.
because of her maternal qualities. Now, I've argued something similar about Emperor Philippa Giorgio in Star Trek Discovery 2, if you um, have listened to last week's episode. So it might be a trend, this thing too, um, using motherhood and especially non-biological motherhood or adoptive motherhood to kind of redeem these evil characters. So yeah, that is today's episode on witches, motherhood, and Maleficent. Um, I hope that you enjoyed the discussion today as always, and thank you for supporting the podcast as always. Um, I am on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. I have a few t-shirts on sale, so head over to the link in my bio on Instagram or Twitter or wherever, and uh, you can find anything there. You can also check out the blog. Uh, Many of these episodes Uh, Many of the content is on the blog too, if you want like a condensed version. So yes, thank you for supporting the Sci-Fi Feminist. And then I hope you have a wonderful week ahead. Please stay safe and healthy. And then I'll see everyone again next week for another exciting episode. Thank you. Live long and prosper. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Hollow Sweet Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Fluffernutter, an expeditionary force podcast. One of the best parts of the book is when Joe introduces Skippy once they hit orbit. <laughs> <laughs> he changes his skin to, was it, Bud Light, and <laughs> says absolutely nothing. <laughs> that, that, was, that was hysterical. That was absolutely hysterical. And why, and why did he choose Bud Light? Oh. Joe asks this question. It's just like, how does he know so much about Earth culture? Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Blast Shield, a Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. I think we all thought Ransom was going to go into that fight scene, thinking that it was game over before it even started and he was going to lose. But I think the moment he rips his uniform off, (laughs) which is hard anyway to rip a shirt, but to rip an actual like jacket like that, Mm. pretty impressive. And then he had like, about, I don't know, I think it was like 62 abs. He just looked ripped. And then he was just like, you know, a little bit of this. Yeah. A little bit of that. I was just going to say, it was the way that he also narrated it. It was just perfect. It was great. Ransom definitely went to the school of Kirk Fu. Ransom Fu, maybe we should be calling it. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.